Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The General Insurance presents Shower Ballads by Shaq. And I'm gonna keep on loving you Cause it's the only thing I wanna do Turns out, everyone does sound better in the shower. And it turns out, The General is a quality insurance company that's been saving people money for nearly 60 years. I just wanna keep on for a great low rate and nearly 60 years of quality coverage, make the right call and go with the general. The General Auto Insurance Services, Inc. Insurance Agency, Nashville, Tennessee. Some restrictions apply. Welcome back into another edition of The Kickabout here on The Blue Room. I am your host, Rob Vera, joined by my co-host, Mark Mosey, and also joined this week by our third, Keith Tomlin. Uh, guys, uh, we are coming in to this week having the ability to talk about an Everton that just keep giving us enough of a reason to have hope. But I'm going to uh, I'm going to try to resist hope as much as possible because hope is uh, hope is a terrible thing when it comes to this football club. But uh, joining me to talk about it this week, Keith and Mark. Keith, uh, you were at the game on Monday. Um, I I. I, I watched it along with, with most everyone else who's listening to this in some form or fashion, and um, I was doing so while kind of – kind of in a semi-distracted way, right? Like I had to, it's in the middle of my work day on a Monday. And so I was able to watch the first half, which I wish that I had not had to watch the first half at all. I mean, we pretty much skip all the discussion and, and ignore the first half and just go straight to the second half. But um, I was having to do that thing where I am on a work meeting and I am having to hold in my emotional responses to the goings on on my television screen. Now, uh, oftentimes with Everton, that's usually just the exasperation at them conceding a goal. Uh, and when we went 1-0 down to Burnley, Keith, I was like, well, this is going about exactly as it appeared that it would go given the first half, given the Really odd choice, which we'll discuss uh, here in a bit, to go with uh, three center halves, five at the back, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
but then we had one of the more fantastic goal scoring flurries that I've seen from this Everton squad. And when I say this Everton squad, let's just say this group of the last three to four years. Uh, it was it was uh, rampant and rampaging, and I had to like suck down all of my enthusiasm while my boss, while listening to uh, you know my boss and others talk about very important work things that I had to really be engaged with. Um, it was a bit torturous, but I've had a chance to go back and watch it. Uh, you were at the game, Keith. Looked like it was a lot of fun. Uh, what was it like to go from zero to? 60 in a matter of <laughs> what seemed like five seconds. <laughs> um, it's, it's not something you come to expect from Everton, is it? I mean, they, they've never been a team that score goals in like a short cluster of time. It always seems to be like if they score two or three goals in a match, it'll be like one at the end, one at the start, one in the first 10 minutes or so. And then the other one won't come along until the sort of second half later on. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a, a blitzkrieg, shall we call it? Um it was it was nice, wasn't it? It was it was one thing I did pick up on, and one thing that was um, quite interesting to me is that um, Benitez was getting ready to make the sub when it was still one nil, mm-hmm. and we scored. And rather than saying, "All right, we scored," we'll sit back and see how it goes. He still made the sub, changed the shape, and I think that helped us kick on a bit because, like up until that point, we were looking very very flat. Um, very very, the shape just wasn't working we weren't getting the ball forward quick enough Um, so I mean a a lot of credit due for the fact that he didn't change his mind because we'd equalised and he said right well to hell with it we're going to go for it anyway Um, but yeah it was was good fun it was probably just as well that the fourth goal was disallowed because I don't think Goodison would have survived it I think if that had counted it would have just fallen down around our ears (laughs) Yeah, It it was a little bit chaotic yeah, and that's the thing, and 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 I should just go ahead and preface as we begin this as we begin this discussion where we have skipped all the foreplay and gone straight for, uh, straight for it uh, into this uh, post match. We unfortunately at the Blue Room uh, had a bit of a debacle this week with the post match. Oh, um, yeah. If you're but listening I'm to this, there's, there's a. There's a good chance that you, if, if you're listening to this, there's a good chance you have reached out to me via Twitter, either angrily or very nicely, perhaps, and, uh, you know, express some exasperation about that fact. Um, you can contact Leslie Roberts um, on Twitter at Les Roberts. What is it? Les Roberts. Oh, wait. He has some numbers. So I'll, I'll find it. And, and look, you can find him. It's pretty easy. Um, he and Matt had an idea, which I thought was actually pretty cool. Mark, you may have heard some of this too. Like we had, or no, you were busy doing birthday things, by the way, happy birthday to Mark Mosey, who, uh, is a very handsome 33. Is that correct? 30. Yeah. Okay. So Mark, Mark was off and we'll get, get to that here in a second, but essentially they decided, and, and I like where these sorts of ideas come from the, the idea that, Hey, you know, let's, let's look for new mediums. Let's look for new uh, platforms and edgy ways in which we can engage more with fans. And uh, that is both uh, innovative and fraught with danger, as we discovered, because while the setup for Twitter spaces is really cool and people can just sort of join it and the hosts can grant people access to talk, it it sort of functions like a call-in show. 
Um, the downside apparently is that Twitter will not make that recording available for a full 24 hours. And it's been more than 24 hours. And I'm guessing that there's still some sort of logistical issue with getting that file downloaded. It may just be the lost episode of uh, the law, the great lost post-match, uh, uh, which unfortunately comes at a time when we've just had one of our best home performances in years. Um, and then I will tell you guys this because we can talk about it on here. In, in trying to engage more with uh, other Blue Room listeners and other Everton fans and doing this sort of call-in format, you also kind of lose that ability to screen callers, if you will. Uh, we had a, a gentleman who started off very normally just kind of talking about the game and uh, it somehow got the conversation got on to, um, you know, the fact that we'd signed uh, Rondon and, you know, what did we really think of him? And then he somehow veered off into a territory where he referenced Moyes Keane in a very derogatory and, shall I say, racist with all capital letters uh, kind of manner. Uh, I won't repeat that comment here, but let's just say it was... Uh, stereotyping and generalization and uh, not even stereotyping. It was just basically calling, he, he basically called Moise Keane uh, something awful. And I, I won't repeat that again, but I, I will tell you that uh, that adventure with Twitter spaces, I think was a one-time experiment or <laughs> will be something that we do as sort of a one-off uh, here and there, but will not replace the post-match pod from this point forward. So we're diving right into po- like, the post post match days later here on the kickabout as a uh, you know kind of public service uh, to our, our blue room listeners. So Mark, uh, you had a birthday and you missed a all of the blue room podcast post match drama and b uh, you are a season ticket holder and you missed uh, a pretty incredible performance at Goodison. Even though you were right, all your instincts, I believe, were right to try to avoid Everton on a Monday night against Burnley at home. I mean, we all know how that kind of game is going to go. You wanted to have joy for your birthday, which I I applaud. Uh, but having said that, you, you ended up missing something pretty special. I know you've gone back and, and watched uh, you know most of the game, or at least uh, the at least the goals. You caught all the highlights and those sorts of things, and I'm sure you've seen all the talking points. Uh, your thoughts uh, on the the Everton that we just recently saw? Um, well, my, my first thought on this is that there is no greater joy in life than when your friends and people that you care about try something new and innovative and it falls flat on its face. Because <laughs> if you can ridicule from afar via Twitter, WhatsApp, Christ, I'd, I'd phone Matt to tell him that something he did turned out to be shit. What, what, <laughs> watching people suffer in that way from London was absolutely amazing. But yeah, as you say, Rob, it's uh, probably something that we're, we're going to do very much as an extra or an add-on as, as opposed to uh, relying on it in terms of post-matches because, as you say, for, for half of the shite games that we have to watch and talk about, it probably would have been fine, but... God help us! It was on the the one day where we had some actual excitement, but yeah, it was um it was an interesting one to. I mean, funnily enough, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about James Rodriguez not knowing who we were playing, uh, and we were talking about you know when certainly for season ticket holders like myself being absent from games or kind of games passing you by without you really realizing. And Monday got close to that for me because we were down in London. We were quite busy. Uh, Harry is present not only to me, but also 
to herself uh, was to to convince me to miss an Everton home game, which doesn't happen very often. But but whenever it does, it seems to be a classic. Uh, I think the the last game I missed for for any form of holiday or going away of sorts was the United four nil game. Um, oh my god. <laughs> Yeah. So basically, you should just never go to games at Goodison. Stop every coming game. to Goodison. Just stay away. I, I would, I would love to say that if it meant Everton won every week, I would do that. But my, my life would be soulless and empty without it. So mm. long live the mediocre toffees. Um, but yeah, interestingly, go, going down to London, I, I was down there, Rob. This, this is going to kick off your business mind here, and that we, we were down there for. Um, a show that was originally a podcast, which has kind of developed and grown into the ability to go out and do a live tour. Um, so you may joke about Twitter Spaces being our, our first step to the big time, but if it means that we're playing Wembley Arena in a few years after a cup final, then I, I think that these are the risks that we've got to take. Um, but yeah, Blue Room the Musical. Well, oh, Blue Room the Musical is. I've been workshopping that in my head for at least a we, year. We can, we can talk long and hard about Les Roberts' lead singing role in that. But uh, yeah, to to watch it, it, it's an interesting thing to watch a game via notifications on Twitter because I think even even if we don't go to the game these days, that the likelihood is that you are able to watch it or get some form of visual from somewhere. Whereas when you're watching sort of BBC commentary or your dad's bad shouts on Twitter to try and figure out what is actually going on. It's it's quite hard to to really live the moment, but to see Everton goals pinging in on a what two minute basis was it, it was taking me back. And we were discussing I know before we recorded earlier today about other games where we have scored in quick succession. And as Keith is right, that this very rarely happens. I mean, my mind instantly went to the the Newcastle 2-all game where we managed to concede too quickly. We always seem to be on that end of it. But, Keith, you mentioned the, the Man United game, and the 3-all, the which I think was a, a September game as well. Um, there's been a, few, it, yeah. been a few videos on the official site recently and dragging that up. And I mean, the, the one thing that sticks in my mind about that one, which was quite similar to Monday night, is that... Whereas we had a goal disallowed on Monday, do you remember Phil Jagielka breaking through when it was three all in that game? Yeah, and the referee blew the whistle oh as he was God. running clean through. David Moyes was an angry man most of the time, but Jesus, at that moment, I thought he was going to absolutely slay that referee. Um, the, the other ones that came to mind: Does anyone remember Birmingham at home in two thousand seven? This is really, really random. But Lee Carsley and James Vaughan both scored in injury time. And it, it was one of those games similar again to Monday. We won 3-1, uh, exactly the same scoreline. It was against a team that, yeah, we, we were pretty likely and expected to beat. But when you when you score two goals so close together late on like that, it, it just makes the atmosphere unbelievable. Um, yeah. Another one, Rob, is probably when you were over for, for Crystal Palace. Uh, they, they were... They were relatively close together, weren't they? The, the, the they were, yeah, because that game was strange because um, – strange is maybe not the right word, but it, it, it just had nil-nil all over it. You had uh, Jordan Pickford saving a penalty, a, a Crystal Palace penalty. Uh, who? Gosh, who's been taking the penalties for Palace for the last several years? I always forget his name. 
Milivojevic, was it? Milivojevic, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can say it, but I can't spell it. Um, yeah, yeah and he he he's actually a really good penalty taker, and and uh, Pickford had a save. And then we're getting late on into the game, and you've got Silva bringing on. Um, oh God, who did he bring? He brought Lookman on, and uh, I can't remember if Calvert Lewin even started that game. I don't recall if he did or not. If there was some other. Luckman put the ball in for Calvert Lewin. Yeah, he? no, Luckman put the ball in. I can't remember who the exactly who the subs were. I'd have to go back and look, but I know Luckman was one of them. Yeah, uh, and Calvert Lewin scored the winner. And then you the about gosh three minutes later, I think you had Michael Keane. And I think we debated whether or not he was just hoofing it down the pitch or if if he was picking a pass out. Though I would argue on the evidence of the last twelve months or so that Michael Keane has got a pretty decent long pass in him. You yeah. know, if he was going to be you know, if he imagine if he was athletic and could be like a goalkeeper at his height or something like that, he would be one of those that I think could could uh, you know pick a pass out. But uh, he uh, hit Chink Tosin in stride, and I still don't know how Chink Tosin uh, was able to run free and and get there. But it was a very tidy finish. It was a very nice game. The other one was um, the the Spurs game, obviously, where for for no reason that any of the fans or the player himself will ever know. Apostolos Velios tried that overhead kick from oh, the edge yeah. of the box, and it, it kind of it kind of hit Yelovich in a very typical Yelovich finish in a, a very late minute of the game. But I think Stephen Pienaar had, had equalised for us not long before that. But th- that night was insane. But that was a great it, game. In in typical fashion, it was it was down at our end on Monday as well. So, so all of these things. Just, just because of how it how it falls usually happen at the Gladys Street, and, and to to miss one of these sort of magical were the, nights. The were the park. goals at the Gladys Street or the Park End? I couldn't. Park, park, end. park, park end. end on Monday. Yeah, so. there's a cracking video. Yeah. Uh, someone's filmed from behind. Yeah, where they get they get the um, the Towns End goal, um, and it's just an absolutely brilliant angle of it. But they keep filming for whatever reason, and obviously you can't really make on make out what's going on up the other end. And then there's just sort of a buzz kicks up, and it's like a two minute long video mm-hmm. that has all Great. of Townsend's goal, and then Andre uh, Andre Gray, uh, Damari Gray's goal <laughs> afterwards. If you listen um, closely on that video, you can hear Les Roberts moaning at Seamus Coleman for us. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be allowed to sit in the park end if he didn't. Yeah. No, it's it's part of the clause. It was. <laughs> It really was incredible. I've seen that video, Keith, and and if if uh, I can't remember, I think it's been shared a bunch. If you can't find it, maybe we'll we'll share it again here uh, after the pod. But I on Twitter Spaces after the pod, yeah, go <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to Twitter Spaces and down and and download, hit a download request, and maybe you'll get it in twenty four hours. But uh, no, the the amazing. I mean, really, look, you know, for those of you in the mood for kind of a post match summary. I mean, here to me, these were kind of the main things. One, you know, one the the starting eleven was just. I, I still like. I, I saw. Um, I saw uh, Rafa Benitez come out. I think it was the day after. It was on the club website. It was posted on the Twitter account. Something about about him kind of trying to explain it all but it was he's he's like well it's formation's not as important as tactics or something like that and it got real kind of uh, you know kind of conflating the two things together but I'm sort of like you can say that but 
your formation choice is ultimately a tactical decision on some level. I mean, I, I thought that it didn't, I, I, I am still, after all these years of watching this sport, someone who probably does not, I, I probably can't articulate um, all of the the mechanical parts of a you know an eleven man uh, setup that has v- these different variables in terms of formation and ter- but I, I do sort of get the idea of what is considered an aggressive formation offensively versus what is a more defensive uh, you know setup and I understand the idea for instance of you're playing Manchester City away. Uh, you set up with a more defensive shape. You clog up the midfield. Maybe five, you you do wing backs. So you have five at the back, and you're you're taking a more conservative approach. What I don't think I totally understand, and maybe Keith, you or Mark can explain to me at least what you think Rafa Benitez's rationale was. I don't understand playing Burnley of all teams at home, who are going to play the most uh, the caveman of caveman football, direct. Uh, some people love it. Uh, it is at times some uh, formula that has worked to keep them in the league. And so I don't want to denigrate them too much, but it is, you know, they, they play, they play a lot of set piece and a lot of, um, you know, hitting the ball long and trying to, you know, trying to make something happen kind of football. I don't understand why you would set up with five at the back against that, but that was the big kind of kerfuffle at the beginning when that choice was made. And then of, then of course the turning point really was, uh, ben Mee scores uh, for Burnley uh, on what, you know, I've gone back and watched it a few times. What was a really perfect, you know, cross into the box. Um, there was some shouts for whether or not Yerry Mina got kind of shoved in the back. Should it have been a VAR call? I've watched it. I don't think, I think, I think Yerry Mina uh, did. I think he tried a little bit to sell it, but frankly, the ball was perfect. I don't think he, if he wasn't getting to it at six foot five, no one was probably getting to it in, in that, in that regard. I guess he could have probably been, you know, positioned a little better, but it was a great goal. And then we all had that dread. Uh, and then, of course, as you would expect, when you need a goal to get back into a game, Michael Keane scores uh, on, a, on a beautiful cross from Townsend. And then in the course of, of that magical five to six minutes, you have I, – I, I think we would – I think I still want to digest this and process this, but that's one of the best goals at Goodison that I've ever seen uh, what, what, what uh, Andres Townsend scored just in terms of the precision, the plate, you know, how far out it was, the, mm. the fact that you have one of the tallest goalkeepers in the league who just, he couldn't get, he, there was no way anyone was getting to that ball. And it was, it was just, uh, it was great. The celebration was great. And then a minute later, and so all this is happening in the space of five to six minutes, uh, a, a, an absolutely perfect pass on a, on a transition or on a breakaway from, from uh, Decore to spring uh, Damari Gray. And, I, you know, hearing a lot of people describe it, they, they knew. Uh, they knew as soon as Gray got it that he was going to finish it in that way that a lot of people used to think, well, th- these are the types of goals that – that Theo Walcott is, or, or Bernard or other guys who might be, or Moise Keen, guys on the break are just not going to score. Gray just seems to have it going. And it just was an eruption. And to Mark uh, or to Keith's point, uh, that, that fourth goal that was uh, ruled offside uh, was a gorgeous finish by DeCore as well, who I think was 
arguably, um, you know, I, I think you can maybe make an argument for man of the match if if Townsend's goal isn't as perfect as it was. But I mean, there there were a lot of there were a lot of contenders for that. But what we're ultimately left with, guys, at three one, and a start of t- a return of uh, we're at ten points after four games, and we have we're we're currently in fourth. Um, Drink talk. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, I mean, other than the Champions League planning that I'm making, I, I, I'm trying to, I, I'm, I'm trying to not do the thing that everyone is doing right now, where they say, "Well, we started great last season, so you know, there's no point in getting invested in this." I'm, I'm trying to find a balance between that and a balance between getting too far ahead of ourselves, right? But what I would say is that, A, we all talked uh, pretty ad nauseum at the beginning of, uh, you know, when the fixtures came out, that this first set of fixtures were were certainly an opportunity. Uh, And Keith, uh, for me, I I would say 10 points out of 12 is certainly an acceptable return given, given that fixture list. But it's one thing to be able to look at a set of fixtures on paper and do the math and say, you know, at the time this is acceptable or this is not. When you actually see the course of events that results in leading to 10 points from 12 and these particular performances, um, I'm trying to come up with what are the trends that I've been able to notice in four league games and five total matches so far. And the, the two things that I keep coming back to, and Keith, I'd like your thoughts on this, this as well is that um, putting aside the lack of investment this summer, we all have talked a million times about what was needed, what was not addressed, and blah, 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 all these things. Um, The two things I keep coming away with are, A, Everton, and I can't believe I'm saying either of these two things, but Everton have been an exceptional, not just a good, but an exceptional second half side so far. I guess you might say not exceptional if you want to say that Leeds, we should have won that, and, and that's fine. But generally speaking, we have looked stronger in the second half. than And that's been something that we've all bemoaned at length. Oh, Keith, you, hear me? you lost this? Yeah, I can hear you, buddy. Mark, can you still hear me? Audio is gone completely. Okay. Mark, you can hear me. He's giving me the thumbs up. Keith has lost us. I don't know why. <laughs> um, anyway, Mark, I will come to you on this as well. Uh, and while I, while I work to work the magic behind the scenes to get Keith back going again. Um, this wouldn't have happened. Huh? This would never have happened on Twitter spaces. I know this is so oh. not going to happen on Twitter spaces. I I'm telling you, <laughs> but, um, you know, so the but, but the first but obviously that first thing is how good we've been in the second half. The second thing, of course, and this is part and parcel with it, Mark. Look how how well conditioned is this group? The fitness levels of these guys compared to what we've seen in the past. It it, it really is that these are the two consistent things I've noticed, and really, I, I'm I, I think that if you were going to make the argument that that if ben, if you're going to make an argument for Benitez, the argument that was going to be made by those who were for a move like this was essentially that he is going to bring competency across the board. Um, you know whether whether he is the one you want or not, whether or not you have better players or not, et cetera. Those are all outstanding issues, but 
you will get the most out of whatever group of players you give him, um, you know, across the board, not just tactically, but also, uh, you know, astute substitutions and those sorts of things. And, and obviously uh, conditioning. Mark, how much is this that we've seen so far with an understanding that the schedule is about to is going to get harder down the road? How much of this is sustainable um, to you? Um, is the, are, are, are Everton playing way above their heads, or is this more of a case of you you essentially provide some width on the pitch and you provide conditioning uh, at a really high level for this group of, of players? I'm not saying they're a top four side, obviously, or anything like that, but can Everton be better than most of us predicted by merely <laughs> by, by merely squeezing uh, more out of the current group uh, than any of us expected? You are absolutely dying to wind up. So ask me if you thought that this this is this title challenge real? I was waiting, Rob. <laughs> waiting, waiting for the outspoken optimism. Um, okay, so. Con- conditioning for a game-by-game basis is one thing in terms of, as you mentioned, longevity over a 90-minute spell, um, being able to produce the 10-minute the spells that, that we saw on Monday night. That is one thing, but I think to continue that on, you can also talk about conditioning, obviously, from an injury avoidance point of view. Um, and to your point about how consistent can Everton be with this, Quite honestly, we don't really know until we start to see how heavily this squad is going to be depleted. Uh, and and that's, that's not to bring it all back around to a negative point, but probably the major limitation of Rafael Benitez's Everton side, as you look at it at the moment, will be, can we keep all of these players fit? Uh, and, and honestly, you, you look at it at the moment, we had the scare with Coleman. We obviously lost Calvert-Lewin on Monday night. It, it, it's very nice to reflect on those things not really being major impacts on us but I guarantee they will be in the next few weeks or or going into a busy winter schedule so Everton's challenge and I know you mentioned Rob the the fixtures being favourable Um, very quickly that fixture list has just become a necessity it's absolutely imperative that Everton build early points because challenges will arise and better teams will will come about us Um, so Joe I honestly as much as it's easy to say this with 10 points in the bag out of a possible 12, I, I don't mind seeing Rafael Benitez try and explore his options with, in particular, formations and, and obviously certain players as well, but that will be limited purely based on the low number of them. But if we are going to try something like a 5-3-2, you want to see it in those games because as stupid as it will make you look, and do you know what? Everton coming back from 1-0 down with half an hour left against any team is by no means a given. Uh, and, and last season was was absolutely mm. of that. But if he has the confidence in his players and in himself to say, well, that first hour was shite, I'm going to change it up. I'm going to bring Gomez on for Godfrey. We're going, we're going to go a little bit more ambitious and a little bit braver. And all of those things that you said earlier, Rob, about what that change of formation did for us then so be it. Um, I, I personally, I, th- I think on paper, 5-3-2 or 3-5-2 or however you want to look at it, it, it suits a lot of our individual players. Uh, but but when you when you try and, 
I, I think when you try and implement- I don't know that it suits our center halves. I'm not convinced of that. <laughs> well, the, the the two the two positions that I think it puts a lot of of predominance on are yes, center halves. I think it only it only really works if you've got a, a very gifted center half on the ball because it all starts to make sense when you've got someone striding out from the back, joining in the midfield, making that midfield two of Alain Decore into a three. Um, you, you'd probably look at all of our centre halves and say Mason Holgate is is probably the one who who looks the most secure in possession. He's played in centre midfield, and the, the the flexibility that you have with having five across the back, if, if he's allowed to break away from that and be a little bit more expansive, then it, it probably starts to make sense at that point. My my problem with it is that at the moment it puts a lot of dominance and a lot of impetus on your fullbacks to go forward and to join mm-hmm. in the attack. We're not going to go into a right-back discussion here, but I would have serious issues about Seamus Coleman's physical ability to... to and I'm not putting the fella down here. He's, he's a professional footballer and can do it for, for 90 minutes week in, week out, and we clearly need him to, but... Just, just changing that fullback role into a wingback role will will ask so much more of him than than we currently do in that back four. Mm-hmm. Luca Dean probably is capable of it, but you know what? I I thought he had an okay game from what I saw on Monday night, but we've already got question marks being asked about whether he's good enough to ever look at Goodison Park ever again, and and that's just that's just you know, football fans. You know what's funny about Luca Dean? He is the ultimate player at times, and and not not all the time. But who? And Keith, I I would love your thoughts on this too. Now that we've got you back, but um, and then this is just sort of a random aside because you know the other the the most critical moment obviously was when when um, Godfrey was brought off, Gomez was brought on, and then you you had the the back four, and you had a more, you had an extra man in midfield, and that seemed to open things up, but. A lot of people pointed to, and, and inevitably we do this as a fan base, but we 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 can win a game three one and still point to all the things or the play you know players who didn't didn't do well enough. But Luca Dean somehow managed for many to just be kind of invisible in that game, uh, or to not put to you know he he definitely had some stray crosses and and some passes that weren't there and and you know, balls that got blocked that shouldn't have been, you know, like all those sorts of things. And yet uh, he, he was on the score sheet, had four, four chances created in that game, which led all Everton players. Like he is, he is that guy who at times will flatter to deceive, but yet his, 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 uh, his, the stats will still, you know, look pretty favorably upon him. I, I don't think we have much. I mean, we don't really have a choice. It's going to be Luca Dean. So, I mean, any discussion about whether or not he's playing well almost doesn't matter because he's the only senior left back at the club. But I also tend to think that, uh, you know, of all the players I'm going to choose to worry about, I just I can't get it in me to really worry about Luca Dean. I think if anything, it's just that he's established such a high bar that if you don't notice him for a while, you feel like he's just not playing very well. But I, I, I wonder, you, you know, being in the park on Monday night, um, you know, what is, is there, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, but do, are we sure that Luca Dean is uh, not carrying an injury or anything like that? I mean, if, even if he was, he's, he's going to have to kind of play through a lot of pain uh, until we get to January at least. I'll be honest, mate. I'm absolutely baffled by the criticism he's had from Monday. Um, yeah. 
No, I I sit uh, lower Bullen, so obviously I'm I'm right by the touchline, so I see the the fullbacks getting up and down each half and whatnot. Um, one thing I will say about him is he didn't look as much of an attacking threat as he can do, and a lot of that was down to distribution to him. A lot of the times when he received the ball, he was looking to break forward, and the balls played in like behind him or direct to him. So he's got to stop. He's got to check his run. By which time a midfielder's come across and blocked over, blocked the avenue. If we start playing the balls for him to run on to instead, he becomes a much more sort of potent threat down that left hand side. Mm. Um, I've seen people pointing the finger at, oh, the goal came from a cross on the right hand side, but that doesn't really stand up for me because it was a breakdown from a set piece um, yeah. and it was a second ball where. Yeah, okay, it was him and Godfrey that went out to block the cross and neither of them managed to block the cross. But it wasn't like he was beaten down his wing by a winger. Godfrey had headed the ball. I believe Godfrey had headed the ball out and it didn't, you know, wasn't obviously didn't clear very far. And then he and Dean tried to, I mean, they just didn't quite get to the cross, but I don't know that I... It's it's one of them. Sometimes it happens from a set piece. Apart from that... Burnley didn't create a single thing down the right wing all right. game. Mm-hmm. Not a single chance came from their right wing. Yeah. So I really don't get the level of like criticism he's had. Like he wasn't brilliant, but he didn't have a bad game at all. He wasn't skinned by anyone in that game. I no, mean, certainly I, I not. I well, and that's the thing I wonder too. And, and this goes back to the the original question about. You know what? I'm trying to determine what's different about this squad, and the most obvious things to me are conditioning and the fact that we are now playing two actual wing players at wing positions. Yeah, I wonder does the imp- does you know Damari Gray, Andros Townsend, like does do having those guys be a more relevant part of the perimeter attack? somewhat blunt what we've had seen from Luca Dean in the past only because he's sort of been relied upon to be that wing presence. Yeah. I, I don't know if he plays more conservatively because of that or, or he doesn't have to be as aggressive or it's part of mm-hmm. obviously starting a back five. I mean, you, you can, there are all kinds of versions of a back five where you have those, those wing backs really bombing forward and other times they're playing more conservatively. I mean, I, I don't know what to make of, of, Luca Dean's. I, I I don't think he's been obviously. Um, you haven't noticed him as much, but I think sometimes when you're talking about a defensive player, a fullback, even one who's known for being a, a good attacking player, I think sometimes not noticing them is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, no, <laughs> I think sometimes um, that can be that can be all right. But and if um, if you look, another thing to look at with Luca Dean is he's been at Everton what now five five years now. Uh, yeah, he Luke. came in 2018, I believe. So was that? It? Was that? Yeah, yeah. He and, so he this, and is, he, this is his fourth season. What was it? He, Yerry Mina, uh, and Gomez. All, yeah, that's about all right. Yeah, from Barcelona yeah. that same summer, I think. So in that time, look at how many players have played on the left wing in front of him. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. You got Richarlison. You got Iwobi. You got Bernard. You've now got Gray and Townsend. Um, I think there was um, was Lukman still here when he when Dean started. I don't know. Yes, I think yeah. he was. Yes, yes. For, for the last, was, so yeah. he's never had like like Baines and Pinar were like it, it was it was like it was written and written on the tablets by Moses himself. 
those two <laughs> would be our left hand side every week. And even that didn't last as many years as we all would have liked to. Have seen no, <laughs> he's not had any sort of consistency in front of him. So right. obviously, you've got to adapt to different styles. Different players are going to track back and let you bomb on. Different players are going to stay forward, and you've got to sort of do the more defensive work. So I mean, I think he's all he's also set himself a very high bar. Um, that first season we had him where he was he was just phenomenal. He set a really high level. And then if you drop off slightly from that, you go, oh, well, why is he not playing at that level? I mean, that level was he was he was arguably the best left back in the in the country that season. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you'd listen to them a lot over the park. <laughs> but uh yeah. yeah, he was he was he was great. So if he's if he's dropped off, he's he's far from um, an issue with Everton right now. We're not saying, oh, we need a new first choice left back. He needs to go. Yeah, we got we got much more pressing concerns. I mean, we need a backup left back because we've let them all go for whatever reason. But yeah, I don't like Ben Godfrey will back everyone. Up. Um, Ben Godfrey can just play. Let's just clone Ben Godfrey. But I mean, while we're on the subject of Ben Godfrey, I thought he had a I thought he had a poor game on Monday. Um, again, he set himself high standards, but I don't think he's fit. I don't think he's match yeah. fit yet. Um, he's and as a result, and in that three centre back system, he doesn't really suit that. He suits being the second, the, the quicker of two centre backs next to like a, a big physical presence, like a Mina or a Keane. Yeah. Um. So it was he. Yeah, it was probably right to bring him off at the time. Um. It, yeah. It'll be really, it'll be really interesting, Mark. And I'd like your thoughts on this in that regard too. I mean, I know you've made the case that there, there are times where three center halves uh, maybe are, are called for. I'm, I'm just. I, I found myself in the first half, and I, I think it was the only tweet I had about the first half was just, uh, you know, am I, am I missing something here? Don't you just simply need to take one of those center halves off for a midfielder? And they, and, and obviously, you know, Medina's ultimately did that. Um, I wonder how many more games you're, I wonder if the, the, the three, three center half setup is going to be more of an occasional curveball sort of thing, or it's, I would like to think that we're still, and, and I think our, our performance would indicate we are a back four pretty standard team in that regard. And in terms of the strength of, of our squad, um, I, I, I do though feel like you always have to have three three center halves that are fully engaged that you can mix and match and rotate as you need to. Like, I don't, I I think that there are a lot of truisms in football that I've picked up on over the years. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but everyone always says, well, you know, you've got to find a a single pair and just stick with them always. And I, I don't know that that's really as true as it always has been. I mean, I think sure you'd like to probably have two that are primarily together but i also think that you really need three to have you know formational flexibility and 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 obviously to cover you for for injuries and and frankly the fact that none of these three are you know they're they're none of them have every, every single trait uh, covered so that you you feel like well you know i mean i know that everyone has said ben godfrey but i think that the reason that ben godfrey and holgate don't work really well is that they're both about six feet tall i don't even know that holgate is actually six feet tall um as a center half uh whereas keen and mina are both really tall 
Um, but they they have their particular shortcomings as well. And so I almost think you have to have three those three guys unless you have just an all-world center half who is both big, tall, fast, great on the ball, et cetera, and kind of mix and match them. Um, if we're starting uh, two center halves uh, against Villa, uh, I guess that's my, my question to you, Mark, is um, given the fact that Godfrey still needs to kind of work his way back in, given how well Mina played and, and obviously – Keen seemed to have a Keen had a, a fantastic second half. Uh, where it almost feels like we're always asking this question, but who are the two starting center halves against uh, you know for the next game? Given given kind of where we're at, well, I, I do think it will be two starting center halves instead of three. Um, albeit the image that we were sold in the summer was this stubborn man coming in to manage the football club and he doesn't care about what you think of him in terms of him being a manager. So in what right mind should he care about what formation he goes forward with? Uh, and and part of me thinks, well, I'd, I'll, I'll respect him if for everything I've said earlier in the podcast about this being the time to possibly experiment a little bit more and to use a little bit more flexibility in terms of your lineup and the formation that you choose. If he abandons that after one poor hour against Burnley, do, uh, are we starting to think, well, it, how, has he any form of conviction in his tactics? I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm just flipping this on its head here, but I, I do... I do think that was the first time he'd played it all season, right? Well, had he played three at the back earlier well, this season? And I forgot. I, it, it's a given that it's a... It's a for it's a favoured formation of his historically, and I think that the problem with the the squad that we've got is that the the eternal temptation will be to play three at the back because we've said for so long that that's where our strength is in terms of not only numbers but quality as well. Yerry Mina, Michael Keane, Ben Godfrey, that they're all very good centre halves, and a lot of clubs in this in this league would. Would be very pleased to have them, but yeah, it, it was a little bit. It was a little bit unsettling with Ben Godfrey, uh, as Keith said when he came off. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, not being at the game, I, I saw that he'd been subbed, and I kept, all of these things rush through your mind about you know, are we going to see the Ben Godfrey from last season? Is this a mirror image of Mason Holgate from the year before? And oh man, all, all of those things that we said that Godfrey wasn't going to do because he's far too much of a a personality and he's so assured both on and off the pitch, et cetera, et cetera. And my mind raced away as soon as I realized that he was being taken off and Andre Gomez was coming on because I thought, Oh Christ, who are we going to sell him to in January? But <laughs> as, as Keith said, I think Godfrey, Godfrey in a way is his style is so dominating when he's one of a two that it, it's almost overpowering when, when you put it in a three and I think you, you've got to be – I'm not saying that he's not positionally disciplined, but he almost thrives on that necessity for him to do a little bit more, to, to mm-hmm. be one of the two. And he, he always, for me, whether it's at right back, left back or centre half, always looks a little bit more settled in that back four. Um, to be honest, I think you could say that about any of them. Um, I know that listening to the interview after the game that, that Sky did with Andros Townsend, Townsend said that it was something that, that Benitez and, and the lads had worked on all week leading up to the game. Um, part of me doesn't want... It, if it needs so much work, then is it natural? Uh, and I know that you know new things have to be have to be practised and trained on at Finch Farm, and, and that's why they turn up every day. But it, 
I don't want this to feel forced. And I think for the first hour of the game on Monday night, it probably it probably lent into that category a little bit. But just to, just to go back to, to Luca Dean, whilst we're talking about that back line, I think it, it's for me now, it's a lot more healthy in terms of how we use him because yes, he was one of the best left backs in, in the, in the league. And, and for my money still is, but I think that that reliance on, a fullback to be your main attacking threat, right? Is a is it? It's a little bit unhealthy for me, and I think that that's probably the reason why the manager went out in the summer and identified key areas of attacking weakness and brought in people like Damari Gray and Andros Townsend to do the things that Luca Dean has quite simply had to do for years, right. and for for so many reasons that we've seen already with Leighton Baines, I think that that subtle threat that he can offer by yeah, maybe not always being involved in the attack, but just maybe arriving late onto the ball and, and not always having a starting position 20 or 30 yards further forward than you really ideally want your fullback to have. If it means that he doesn't get caught out defensively as much, if it means that we see someone like Damari Gray doing things that Everton wingers quite simply haven't done for, for years, then I think that the best example you could have of any of this is Andros Townsend for Everton's first goal on Monday. Just doing the things that a winger's meant to do, receiving the ball out wide, cutting back in, putting a great cross in. And I know that that might seem really simplistic, but for for so many years, you'd see an Everton midfielder in someone like an Alex Awobi, for example, who's a, a great example, and Theo Walcott as well, who probably don't feel comfortable just naturally swinging the ball into the middle of the penalty area. That that ball probably would have come back out to someone like Alain or Decore on the edge of the box. We'd work it back out to Luca Dean and he'd have a go because he's the he's the one who puts the ball in and, and, and that's how Everton's goals appear. So I think that that variation of threat and, and moving that around the pitch a little bit more yeah, it, it probably takes a little bit of that limelight and a little bit of that reliance away from Luca Dean. But as you said, Rob, we're going to have to play this lad every single week in every competition. And if it, if it means that we demand a little bit less of him, even 5 or 10% in each game, then I'm willing to live with that on the basis that we've got attacking footballers who actually know what to do in that third of the pitch now. Well, and, and Keith, I think that actually brings up an interesting question of of if Luca Dean is is if you want to be in a position to not rely, like it's weird because you you want to get the best out of Luca Dean. Uh, he is a he is un, undoubtedly one of your very best players, but to Mark's point, I think this is true. We have had an, not only an over-reliance on him to create chances, we have had an over-reliance on the same two guys to score every single goal for this club for the last you know couple of years as well, which I think has been unhealthy. Um, I think that if Rafa Benitez, I think you could, and maybe the argument I would make if someone said, Rob, you need to, I need you to make an argument for why Rafa Benitez wants to invest time on the training pitch, around a three center half lineup, it might simply be him looking at our squad and saying, I have got more center halves than I probably would, you know, than, than I, you know, I've got an abundance of, of, of quality center halves. I have a paucity. Uh, there's, there's my 50 cent word for the day, a paucity of, uh, of, of, of fullbacks. 
I'm going to understandably be without Dean at some point because we either have to rest him, we have to, uh, you know, deal with a, an injury that he will inevitably pick up, like every player seemingly does. So the idea is that can we can we you know be comfortable in an environment where we may have to put someone in as a wing back in that position, play three center halves. We've got three guys that we believe in really well. Maybe maybe that's the idea is that Everton are. I mean, Ancelotti talked a lot about it, but but ultimately the practitioner of it may be someone like Benitez who comes in and says, no, you literally have to have multiple formations that you can be solid and comfortable in playing in, even if that means you start in one way and you make an adjustment in midway through the game like we saw on Monday. I do kind of think that that he likes – I mean, frankly, he, he there, there's a decent enough chance that he looks at Mina, Keen, and Godfrey and says – I know they're they're all center halves, but I want them all on the pitch. I think that they offer things. They 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 you know they do things that they can help win games. I, I don't now. I will say about Godfrey, like I'm not to, to Mark's point. I'm not that worried about Godfrey. I think that it's one his first game back. I think he's just getting his his legs back underneath him at this point. Um, what I fear to Mark's point, if I'm going to go to do that Everton thing, where I fear the worst possible outcome is that. We go through some sort of Mason Holgate redux where we have, where we were all convinced that Mason Holgate was the future captain of this side. We got he got a new contract. Everyone was super excited about him. I, I personally believe Ben Godfrey is made of of tougher stuff than Holgate. I, I mean, I've been very upfront about the fact that, and I like that Holgate's come out and said, "Hey, I didn't have, I wasn't good enough last season," and whatever. He sounds a little more humble, but Mason Holgate has been so openly arrogant on the pitch and he has not backed it up with his play. And, and I, I don't think, but I, I also think frankly that, you know, just when you come down to the basics of it, Ben Godfrey is bigger, stronger, faster than Mason Holgate. And, and that's probably why to your point, Mark, he sometimes will rely on his athleticism to get him out of, you know, messes in terms of maybe not feeling like he has to be super positionally disciplined all the time. Cause he knows he can make up for it with that speed. I think it was interesting, uh, Keith, I, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but I like your thoughts on the tactical part of this, but it was so odd to me that when you when when Rafa Benitez put out that starting eleven, you have a back three of Godfrey Keane and Mina. You would have thought if you would get if if you had said, well, who's who's going to be in the middle of that three? You would have said, well, it'll be Yerry Mina or Michael Keane. It was Ben Godfrey for some reason. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, the most mobile, the easily the fastest of all three of them was the one in the middle. Now, he switched that at some point late in the first half. I think uh, he switched places with Keane, and I think Mina was still kind of flanking the right side for most of that game and allowed to push up a little bit. But I, I don't know how much of this is just him seeing what he's got and tinkering because he feels like he can. Uh, or if there's something that I'm not seeing in regards to his thinking here, like why would you put your fastest center half or your most athletic center half in the middle of two gigantic, uh, you know, relatively gigantic, uh, relatively, uh, you know, slower, not, not, I mean, I think Mina's speed is not as bad as some people make it out to be, but it's certainly, he's certainly not, not the paciest guy in the world. Um, what, what do you make of that? Is this all just kind of experimentation and, and tinkering at this point? So, I mean, I've been thinking about the the way they set up with the, with the three centre-halves, and 
I think a lot of that was due to um, the fact we were playing Burnley, who always, without fail, play with two big grok centre-forwards. Yeah. They're going to put the ball long. It's going to be a physical battle. I think the idea of putting Godfrey in the middle there is that you leave Keane and Mina to pick up a striker each, depending on who who is targeted with the long ball. And then Godfrey's there for his, his mobility to sort of get on to any flick. If they win the ball and flick it on, he's there with his pace that he can pick it up before a Burnley winger gets onto it or whatnot. Um, I think it goes back to what Mark said earlier about Holgate being comfortable on the ball. We know that Ben Godfrey likes to bring the ball out from defence. Yeah. So putting him in the middle of the three means that if he brings the ball out, the other two can just stay where they are and form a, a, a partnership of two um, yeah. rather than one of them having to slide across. Um, it's it's one of them. I've just been looking at Aston Villa lineups um, this season, trying to second guess how Saturday is going to go. And they've played four games and had four different formations. So it's impossible to try and figure them out. Um, they actually went with two up front against Chelsea and got spanked for it. So I think they'll revert probably to one striker on Saturday, mm. um, which will likely be Danny Ings as a target man. Um, so He's I wouldn't be surprised. I, he's scoring. Oh, of course he's scoring. He's always yeah. he's always scoring. Anytime Danny Ings lines up against Everton, I expect him to score. Um, <laughs> oh, one nil. Yeah. yeah. Let, let's start. <laughs> let let's start now from one nil behind and then just get going straight away. I will um, as well. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think what we'll I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them drop back to a, like a four at the back with yeah. possibly Godfrey for his pace alongside Mina or Keane. Um, so far, Benitez has favoured Keane. I don't think he's missed a game yet, has he? Uh, uh, he didn't start... From, he didn't play the cup game, did he? Yeah. No, he didn't play the cup game. The, the Mina was out game. for one of those games. At the start of the season, it was just Keane and Holgate available, I think. Yeah. Me, I think Mina was on the bench for the first game. Yeah, me, Mina, Mina was injured coming back from Colombia, wasn't he? Yeah. They yeah. eased him back in. So yeah. he, he seems to like Michael Keane. In fairness to Michael Keane, since he's got over the mistake at, uh, against Southampton, um, he had probably about a 6 out of 10 game against Leeds as well. But Brighton and uh, Monday night there. I think it, it, he's faultless. He's, he's had two really good games, um, capping it off with scoring the, on Monday, which was, by the way, it was a lovely, it was a very Everton goal. Cross cross from out wide and a bullet yeah. header that the keeper doesn't move for. It's just very aesthetically pleasing to me. Um, I, think, I think you've got, I've said it before, but... You need to be getting ten goals combined from Mina and Keane. I think. Uh, I think yeah. so. It's a set pieces and it, from like like that one where it broke a set piece broke down and they stayed in the area and kept the ball alive rather than it having to get recycled and the defenders run back and get in a position. They stayed in an attacking position and we saw we we reaped the benefit of it when um, it was a fantastic cross to be fair to Townsend it was absolutely perfect front post begging to be attacked and uh, great header from Keane yeah. yeah, one, one of the things I'd say about that that goal um, and this will lead me on to a point about, about Townsend's Billy Electinov channeling goal as well is that when, 
when that cross comes in from Andros Townsend, if you count Abdullah Decore, who's just on the edge of the box, we've got six players in the opposition box. And mm. that is that is not something that we are usually very good at in terms of committing numbers forward. And it, it seems like a very basic point to say that the more men you put in there, the more likelihood you've got of scoring. But just that, that sheer occupancy of other defenders makes it impossible to... Yeah, not not only not be able to pick up people like Michael Keane, who are obviously the the major aerial threat, but if that ball does come out to Abdullah Decore or someone on the edge of the box, the likelihood is that Everton Everton players win that ball. And I think to to lead that on to to the Townsend goal, which shortly followed, and um, first of all, the, the fantastic thing about that is that the two players who we absolutely needed to to work this season if we were going to progress. For me, were Alan and Decore, and to see them, to see those two players involved at an early stage of that goal, yeah, the, the nature of the strike and, and how unbelievable the goal was kind of takes away from the fact that that's Alan winning the ball back, giving it to Decore, and Decore finding a pass very, very quickly to a player who he knows can go on and be in a, an, an attacking threat in the move, and I think that those two, yes, even with the fair goal as well. I think you're gonna you're gonna find that a lot of Everton goals originate from one of, if not both, of those players. Um, but again, yeah. when, when Andros Townsend picks up on that ball, what forty-five yards out from goal? I mean, it, it, it's relatively poor defending to let to let him run at him for for ten or fifteen yards. But I think that the thing that pleased me so much about that goal was that Everton had three, well, yeah, three or four. No, it was three men ahead of the ball at, at the point where he strikes that. And I guarantee if Richarlison's not making that run, if Andre Gomez isn't offering out on the left, if Damari Gray's not right up there with play as well, there's no way that the Burnley defenders aren't giving Andros Townsend that much time. Because in exactly the same way as that first goal, if you have some form of commitment and confidence in what you're doing going forward, you'll open up areas of space that people like Andros Townsend will absolutely thrive upon. And you can you can talk all day about his foot being like a traction engine to go full partridge here, but the the importance of committing men forward is something that we've been historically so poor at. When you go back to the days of Calvert Lewin being totally isolated when he first started playing up top, Wayne Rooney when when he came back to the club and, and just being that that lone figure up top who we just expected to be Wayne Rooney and we were all absolutely delighted one day when Davy Classen made a run in the penalty area because it was something that we just hadn't seen for, for so long and I think what, what you're going to get with people like Graham with Townsend himself when he, when he's not on the ball and in particular with people like Decore who they've clearly been given an MO from the manager this year of we expect more from you in the final third and yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it was very apparent when he was scoring his own goal against Southampton. But for me, the, all these slight nuances in terms of him just finding himself further up the pitch, that they are going to massively benefit people who who are able to impact the goal. Um, and I think Andros Townsend is the ultimate player to to be able to benefit on that. Yeah, we we, we will say to that point. Oh, I'm sorry, Keith. Before oh, sorry. you get to that exact point. Um, 
uh, again, we, we need to see this sustained, but we suddenly have, we've suddenly gone from those concepts we talked about where we're over a lot. We have the same sort of attack every time. It's either Dean creating something or nothing's being really created. It's either Richarlison or Calvert-Lewin scoring or no goals are getting scored to suddenly the, the impetus being put on guys like DeCore to play further forward and to get in the, you know, to get aggressive, get in the box, mm-hmm. to open up that space as you talked about. I think I I think I added it up the other day. I mean, we've got we have had six different goal scorers so far this season, which yeah. is just incredible. I mean, yeah. that's that's the that's what it's going to take, um, and 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 really to be able to see the, to see that kind of aggression be rewarded and not punished. We'll see what happens when when that you know we're playing other other sides, of course. But I think that that part is is really heartening. Um, Keith, go ahead. Yeah, what, what I will say, um, going back to what, what Mark said uh, about goals originating in midfield, if you look at uh, Andre, uh, why do I keep calling him Andre Gray? I don't know. Um, if, you look, if you look at the Gray, looking at Gray's Andy Gray, goal, yes, go ahead. <laughs> if you look at his goal on Monday night and you look at his goal at Brighton, was yeah. Brighton he scored? Two things stand out for me. One, the first thing is his run. He runs from deep, like from really deep. So he hasn't got a man on his shoulder per se. He runs past someone who sort of goes, oh, yeah, he's running. I better chase him. By which point he's five yards past him and he's got space. The other thing in the case of Alan at Brighton and Dukure on Monday night is they don't release the ball early. It's not a hopeful ball forward. They wait, they hold the ball, and then when he's got that five yards of separation, they play the ball about 10 yards in front of him for him to run onto. And in both cases, it's been absolutely perfect. And it's one of those goals, really, that if you make that run from deep and your man doesn't pick up on you quick enough. You can't defend that. You can't start you are getting in on goal and you're having a shot. It might not he might not always score. Keeper might make a save. He might put it wider or not. But you're always going to get a shot on goal from that sort of situation. And if we can if that's something we can exploit, because both of both Alan and Dakure are very good passers of a football. Um Andre Gomez as well is a good passer of a football for whatever for whatever other faults he might have about his game. He can pass a football. If we can look at that. That's another help. example, Keith, by the way. Andre Gomez is also being tasked with playing further forward yeah. as opposed to being – he's yeah. never ever going to be this sort of holding midfielder type or playing so, no. so far back. It's just not his game. He's not a winger either per se, but I, I – Correct me if I'm wrong, because you guys will remember individual games better than I than I, I ever can. But it feels like Andre Gomez has been a net positive when he's come on as a sub for the most part all season. I, I again finding a way, you know, the manager finding a way to take a piece that that many had given up on. You can put Alex Wobie in the same camp and finding a way to make them into, you know, to 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 give them a role that they can kind of attach themselves to and say, like Andre Gomez seems to get in there and and start passing the ball and getting involved. Uh Iwobi, same thing instead of uh instead of just frankly, you know, kind of reverting to form. Hopefully that's that kind of thing continues. But it, it's getting a lot out of players that that frankly none of us expected them to get him to be able to get much out of. He strikes me, Rob, as a player who very much thrives on coming into the game 
I'm, you know, I'm sure he wants extra playing minutes and would love to start every match. But when the game has expanded a little bit and there are those pockets of space in between our strikers and midfielders, if he's been told by Rafael Benitez to go and exploit those spaces and be the midfielder who goes and breaks the line, as Keith said, he's a very gifted footballer when he's got the time to do it. But if you're going to drag him back 20 yards and ask him to do that role that Alan does, for example, where you've got not only oncoming midfielders rushing at you, but you'll have a number 10 or, or a striker dropping deep from the opposition to put extra pressure on you. And it, it seems as though maybe it's something that comes with, with age. And he, it, certainly when he came back from the injury, that, that level of sharpness that you probably need to to exist in that number six position just in front of your own back four, that, that probably seems a little bit too much for Gomez. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably where we have most of our hesitations about Alan earlier, maybe not necessarily this season, but looking back at last season, is that it, he almost looked a bit rushed because he was under that much pressure and that much scrutiny from the opposition. But I think if you let Andre Gomez not necessarily play in a 10 or or a free role to, to give it a name, but just to allow him to be that ball player midfielder. And if, if it does mean he finds a pass on 70, which breaks a, a midfield up, in a similar way that that we saw Decore do it on Monday night, then that that may be his position in this squad. And, and as I say, it, it may not be one that that perfectly resonates with him if he is going to be that sort of impact player. But as you say, every, every time he's come on, in particular this season, he he's looked like someone who's had that element of of finesse on the ball. When when you have got people tiring, and in particular in our own side, when all of that workman-like nature has, has kind of done its job in terms of wearing down an opposition. When you want to bring someone on who's, who's going to be able to unlock a defence, that, that, that screams Andre Gomez to me. And that, that, that style of cultured midfielder is, is absolutely him. But just to touch on a couple of things about the, the third goal, um, the noise when Decore put Damari Gray through, that just obviously wasn't, wasn't there to witness it. But Keith, that, that sort of general excitable hum from the whole crowd when yeah. you realize that for the next five minutes, Everton, excuse me, for the next five seconds, Everton were probably going to be in a position to score a goal. I mean, that that's yeah. a bit incredible. And then there's there's the drop as well. Just just as Gray goes yeah. to shoot, it goes quiet, and then there's the roar, and it's oh, it's just it's just lovely, isn't it? It's just great. That sort of subtle silence just before his, his foot hits the ball is something that yeah. people who don't go the football will never actually be able to to put their finger on. It's, um, it's, it's yeah. second for me. It's second only to the the whole of Goodison shouting turn <laughs> yeah, when a man yeah. gets the ball <laughs> and he's got space behind him. Turn. We, we, we said on a pod a few weeks ago. The, the only other one that's up there is when when one of your defenders trips. An opposition player in the box, and and you're just collectively waiting for the whistle to be blown. But you kind yeah. of you kind of just sit there with ten shoulders, just hoping that you're the only one who saw it. Um, sort of look away and go, well, yeah. if I didn't see it, maybe the ref didn't. But um, it comes back to like how good, how good is like when you watch the highlights of the football. How nice is it to watch highlights without commentary, and you yeah, can just yeah. hear the crowd noise. It's absolutely, it's lovely. It, it, that really should still be an option. I know you could. You could it should be, yeah. 
I, and it's 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 one problem I've got with Everton's highlights is the retroactively recorded commentary just sounds so fake and detached. Just do away with it and just yeah. put the footy on the telly for us to watch. The most important yeah. thing we need to mention about that third goal is that Damari Gray has he's learned his lesson from a couple of weeks ago and he's gone away and he's worked on it, but he has perfected the knee slide. That and knee slide was much better. <laughs> and and he blew a kiss to the Burnley fans as well, which was just lovely. I was starting yeah. to really think about his position in this squad after that Leeds goal because as, as much as I appreciated the point, <laughs> that is that is essential Everton. Um, but yeah, yeah, you've got to have a knee slide. N- nice to see that the groundsman have watered that area of the pitch for him. I'll tell you who had a cracking knee slide. Do you remember Funes Mori at Bournemouth? Yeah. He went about 30 yards, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He affected the, the hand-heart gesture. hand-heart while knee sliding. Some say that he was actually barbecuing halfway through that knee slide. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was that should have been, I still maintain that Bournemouth goal, that should have been his moment. If we hadn't blown that game, that would have been the Funes Mori game. It or just, the, the Chelsea one where John Terry was outside about one, 10 yeah. yards. Yeah, the, I I still get mad thinking about that game. Uh, so those those two moments ruined Bournemouth's career. That, was that the same season too? That all felt like Martinez' final season. Of that was Martinez three, I think. For, forget yeah. Mysteri spending five hundred million and it coming to nothing. The absolute false dawn was Funes Mori's two goals leading to nothing that season. That, that- <laughs> I know there will be a lot of other commentary on Funes Mori's time at Everton, but for me, my absolute favourite moment wasn't the barbecues. It was West Brom away when we were 2-0 down, came back to lead 3-2, right? right? There was a 93rd minute breakaway, like <laughs> Lukaku and um, I think it was... I think it was uh, James McCarthy was up with him. And then Funes Mori sprinted like 90 yards to join this counter-attack. We're like, get back, you've been brought on to defend. He's like, nope, I want a goal. That was it. That was like just legging it through. And everyone sort of looking at him going, what's he doing? I, I think people, people get nervous when Yerry Mina pushes far for you, know, pushes up a little bit uh, with that aggressive defending. But Funes Mori, dude, he he freaked everyone out constantly with with yeah. being out of position. <laughs> he had no time for the basics of football. No. He just wanted to get forward and do his knee slides. Yeah. You gotta respect that. The worst thing that ever happened to him is that every Everton fan saw that video on YouTube of the free kick he scored for River Plate. So oh, every, yeah. every single time he got the ball in the opposition half, we thought this guy's going to start making sense now because he's going to ping one in from 40 yards. But no. yeah, he, he was to me what Yerry Mina is to you, Rob. I think the, I called <laughs> all of the South American flamboyance that a centre half should absolutely not have. And in my mind, he could do no wrong. Um, and yeah. The fact that Divac I wanted I wanted Funes Mori to work because I loved I love you guys know uh, that you know my fellow Latin brothers uh, flamboyance and color and just pure size of personality is something that I fully embrace. I just wanted Funes Mori to be a better player than he was. That was the problem. <laughs> but, you know, I at least spent, with Yeri, I, Yeri Mina is at least 
a really good player. I, I can't, you know, Funes Mori is just, just, he wasn't really made for the Premier League. Yeah. I spent weeks arguing with Tim Vickery online after, <laughs> oh, he, sa- so after right. he said that he wasn't going to make it, and I was adamant that he was. Didn't he say he got Aguero? So... Well, no one's no one's got a hundred percent record on that kind of stuff, and I've been wrong about players uh, that I thought were going to be great that weren't. Uh, you know, I certainly thought I, I certainly thought we get a lot more out of Gilfie Sigurdsson. I thought I thought Ashley Williams was a good idea, so I'm not. I certainly don't want to be. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be throwing uh, rocks from my glass house uh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> um, hey. Last last note on the game before we uh, start to wrap up, uh, because I, I definitely want to get to the other item that, that we discussed before uh, we, we hit record. But um, look, I, I'm I, it, it was funny on the post match, the lost post match that none of no one will ever hear uh, or maybe maybe it'll come out eventually. Who knows? But um, uh, I didn't bring his name up, Mark, at all. Uh, we were actually wrapping up and then Matt stopped Les from wrapping up to, to, to point out, uh, he said, Rob, how did you feel about Yerry Mina tonight? Because Matt enjoyed Yerry Mina's performance so much the, you know, the other night. Uh, I do want to give, give a shout out to Yerry Mina, who I thought also had an, you know, he had nine, nine aerial duels won. He, he's so built for those types of matchups against the, the cavemen sides of the league, but really against any type of uh, physical striker. And, and I thought, I thought he was exceptional. One thing I noticed that I thought was interesting, and this is just the kind of stuff that I noticed, but Keith, you mentioned that two-minute video that's been circulating online. Um, I make note of goal celebrations, who's involved, uh, you know, if there are dances, there are handshakes, uh, et cetera. I was watching, when I was watching the game on TV, the, the most odd thing I noticed was that for goals two and three, uh, Yeri Mina, who is normally the one of the first to get in the middle of the goal celebration fray, was was not in was not even in camera view uh, for either of the goals. And I'm like, well, what's going on here? When that video got posted online that showed that Gladys Street view with the full two minutes uh, that had the Townsend goal and the Gray goal, both times you saw Yeri Mina being called over to the sideline for for Rafa Benitez to communicate some. It looked like instructions to. They were very intently talking, and then you saw Mina come out and talk to Allen and uh, Richarlison and a few other. Like I do think that there is still that that comfort level of a Spanish speaking manager yeah. speaking to one player who then goes yeah. and talks to other players whose English may not be as good. But I, I I find those kinds of little details interesting. But the big takeaway for me from that wasn't really about Yerry Mina, but it was more about how Rafa Benitez, and, and the one thing that I think we've all kind of appreciated so far about him has been that unlike uh, Carlo Ancelotti, who just kind of, you know, you know, rocked up every day and was like, I, I've said several times now, his plan was, hey, I'm Carlo Ancelotti and that's the plan. Uh, there, there's a very much, the, the thing that I think everyone's noticed, whether it's through the videos that Everton releases, but also during the game is just the level of, of one-on-one engagement that Benitez seems to have in terms of coaching up these players constantly, communicating with them, giving them feedback, making changes in the game. There's not really a, 
you know, he doesn't, he's not the kind of manager that just seems to just sit back and let others kind of do that coaching job for him. He doesn't really seem to sit back during games. He's, he stood up on that touchline, constantly communicating. And, and for him to, in the midst of the pandemonium of those two goals to, you know, not be too up for, or, you know, anything. And he was just already calling some, you know, calling Mina or calling whoever over to communicate. I, I find that, I find his style to be such a huge contrast to what we've seen, you know, with our last, our last, uh, you know, couple of managers uh, in particular, but um, no, just a random moment that I noticed and and, and thought was interesting uh, for sure. All right, guys. Um, I think we've pretty much wrapped that up. The last thing I was going to ask, uh, we've got Villa on Saturday night. Um, this is our, I, I mean, this is the, I, I mean, am I wrong in saying this is definitely or at least on paper seems to be our most challenging fixture so far this season away at Villa? Um, I, would, I would say Leeds probably just because of the, I mean, obviously afterwards in hindsight, maybe not, but with, yeah. the, with it being their first game in the Premier League with fans back, and it, it yeah, was a good point true. to get at the time. I would have taken a point from that one. Villa, the way they've been playing this season, um, they've looked shall we say ropey mm, here comes um, everything here they've, comes they've bought a lot of players and they haven't they haven't integrated them necessarily i would yeah. have said this is this is the game we should be looking to attack and get at them keep because the, their confidence isn't going to be high at the moment um especially yeah. coming off the back of a 3-0 spanking at chelsea um mm. it's a game What's- where we should get at them but i mean obviously we're not going to obviously we're going to do whatever can do best well, and just completely throw away momentum. Um, <laughs> but I love the confidence. I love this. Then we go top. Oh, oh I know. It, it's already that. I know. It's, it's already, <laughs> jokes have already written themselves about this game. But frankly, I, I had a bad feeling about Burnley, especially when we went one nil down. And so I, I'm trying to think, you know, I just need to keep this bar of expectation low and cynical. And if I do that, then we'll, we'll be okay. But I, I haven't watched much of Villa this season. Um, is it just an oversimplification to say that they're their best player uh, and one of the, you know, Frank, you know, arguably top players in, in the entire league left them? Uh, you know, they, they certainly spent money this summer and, and certainly fortified with some some real talent. Uh, Buendia especially is someone that I find to be uh, incredibly intriguing. Um, is this all just uh, growing pains for them? Um, yeah. I, I mean, given their form so far this season, I, I, I don't see in, in our form, uh, I don't see why we can't go and, and get a, a decent result there, but... You know, it, it's also a team that that is at home. Uh, they're des- they're probably a little bit desperate right now, and uh, they've got a lot of talent. How do you guys see uh, things things uh, rolling out on Saturday night, Mark? It, it reeks for me, Rob, as a game where attack will be the best form of defense. I think for all, for all of the things that you just said about Aston Villa, maybe fragile is a bit a bit too extreme, but. I certainly think that Everton are the more settled of the two sides. Uh, right. in, in terms of where each side lays, I think all of the things that you just said about Aston Villa in terms of coming into the season on the back of investments and you know bringing some players in who are undoubtedly gifted um, but have not necessarily played with some of these players before and, and for some of them probably not played at this level before. You could, you could probably look back at an Everton side last season who brought in Decore and Alan and all of these players who... We probably all collectively agreed that 
in a season's time, they'd all be integral in terms of everything that Everton do. And, and we're starting to reap the benefits of that. And I think you could you could quite possibly see Aston Villa becoming that side next season where you do get people like Buendia and even to an extent Ings, who, who may well score 15 goals this season, but he, he strikes me as the type of striker who'll do that anyway because he'll get three against Everton without fail. But I think that... This is certainly a game where you would expect Everton being 12 months further down that that development line to really kind of take the game by the scruff of the horns necessarily and and be that team who really puts their foot on the gas, whereas Aston Villa will probably want 20 or 30 minutes to work their way into it. People like Damari Gray, Townsend, all, all of the... The styles that we saw of Everton on Monday night, and in particular in that third goal, where, as, as Keith said before, you got someone like Damari Gray running from deep. It, I don't know why going to Villa, but it, it always seems relatively expansive. It always seems like our most gifted players have got a little bit more space on the ball. I always reflect on that on that brilliant performance years and years ago now, where uh, Leon Osman and Tim Cale, and we absolutely tore them apart. And we've had we've had a few good results there, but. I certainly think that if if Everton kind of take the initiative in this game, it, it could be one that gets taken away from Aston Villa very quickly. Um, mm. I, I I don't want to see us go go a goal behind. I know that's incredibly obvious, but I think if we start resorting to form and being a little bit more defensive and allowing the game to get to a sixty minute mark and then just kind of seeing what happens, you, you'll get away with that against Burnley at home and. I, Aston Villa have got the the ability to punish you later in the game, whereas Burnley probably didn't have that on Monday night. So, I, I honestly expect us to go there and win. Because um, if, if wow. not now, if not now, then when we, we are a side who, yeah, we will probably have our frailties down the line in terms of numbers and injuries and all of the things that we've said. But we we look like a Premier League team at the moment that absolutely no one wants to play against. I guarantee that every one of their defenders will have seen pretty much every kick of Andros Townsend, Richarlison, and in particular, Damari Gray. And I know we're going to be without Calvert-Lewin for this game, but it, it pro- and as much as I never want to be without him, I think what we saw on Monday night was a front line that was incredibly mobile. And I'm not saying that Calvert-Lewin isn't that player, but sometimes when you go away to a mid-level Premier League side... That, that ability to be so fluid across your front line just causes absolute chaos. I think if, if they're relying on on Mings to, to hold that all together, then I don't necessarily think we've seen anything this season that would make any of our front line terrified of that. So I think that, it, that's a game that Richarlison should thrive in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I mean, him and Damari Gray, it, they really excite me. I, I get all the feelings for this game as going down to Brighton, just being one of those games where if your best players play at their highest level or even give us a 7 or 8 out of 10, will cause a hell of a lot of problems. And I think on top of that, the one thing that Everton are at the moment, which is totally not true to form, is they're very clinical. And uh, I know that some of the stats that have come out about Damari Gray in particular in front of goal, and, and obviously we're seeing that with Townsend now, our ability to to not only impact the goalkeeper and hit the target, but to score goals with the chances that we're creating is is really up there. So, it honestly, there's a couple of teams in this league who will always go three five two against that we said at the start of the show, and we'll always have that 
defensive stability and, and that kind of reservedness about us. But this is one of those games that Everton just need to go out there and punch Aston Villa in the face and, and bring three points home. Oh, yeah. Keith, do you share uh, any of this uh, confidence that Mark has? I mean, he's got me excited. <laughs> I do, and it's for a very weird reason. Okay. Because like, normally Villa are a bit of a bogey team for Everton, yeah. and I think it's because Everton teams of the past have always been quite compact and hard to break down and stuff. I don't know if this is going to make any sense or not, because the differences have to be negligible at best. The pitch at Villa Park seems to be bigger than yeah. other pitches. Oh, there always seems to be space to play on. And with the likes of Richarlison and Damari Gray, there is going to be room for them to get in behind, to stretch that back line. And there's not a player in that def- Villa back line that I would like worry about marking either of those two out of the game. No. Um, they're not a gr- they've not got a great defence. They've got a good goalkeeper, fair like a credit where it's due he is a cracking goalkeeper he definitely yeah they they relaxed some of those i think they relaxed some of that like i think he only missed one game right i think he's going to be back forever i think he's allowed Uh, to play again which is which is about right forever he's a great he's a great Um, keeper i I love i love martinez i think it's it's going to be one of those like, like mark said don't don't go in and sit and try and see out the first half hour because they're not going to be a team that come rushing out the blocks at you. Like you see like a Liverpool or a City, the first 10 minutes, they will just hammer at the door and see what they can get. Um, Villa will probably be a lot more cagey themselves with the, uh, coming off the back of a 3-0 at Chelsea. They're not going to want to play all-out attacking football. They want to going to try and ease themselves in. Um, confidence won't be as high as it could be. So get at them. Get the yeah. ball played in early. Get get moving quickly and attack them. Put them on the back foot from the start. And I think you should control the tempo of the game from then. Get a goal, maybe two goals up, and that's when you look at changing it, bringing on the likes of Gomez to put his foot on the ball and control it. Maybe bringing on a third defender and going to that three at the back to become more sort of e- make it easier to defend against the long ball to Ings and whatnot. But yeah. it's, it's certainly it's a winnable game. And we haven't said that a lot for Everton on the road. Even even with the successes last year, you never really felt that Everton were going to go away and win. It was always quite surprising when they did. This feels like a game that they could win if they if they take the game by the scruff of the neck. Yeah. Rob, I've got an incredibly important point to make on what is, I'm going to guess, a very, very reliable blog post that I've just dragged up on the internet. But... Apparently, the biggest pitch in the Premier League, certainly last season, was Brighton. So probably a a, a lot of the positives that we saw earlier in the season, and this is the maddest point I've ever made on a podcast, is because we've got that extra space to work in. Um, Shut up, Rob. So joint joint second with nine other clubs is Aston Villa. I think it it does. It looks like a big Why are the pitches not all completely uniform, by the way? What's up? Why are the pitches? Why are the dimensions of the pitch oh, not completely uniform? There's a, there's a tolerance, um, like FIFA yeah. allow a tolerance, and it, it it makes like different teams set the like pitch up. Too, by the way. Different teams set the pitch up differently to like play to their strengths and attributes. Like Goodison Park always used to be quite narrow because um, we yeah, were a very compact so like, team. If, if you if the pitch is more narrow, then it had they compensate by being 
longer? Well, no, truly. You, like, like, this uh, area to work in with both length and width. Yeah. You, you could, okay. in theory, compact it both ways to make it as small as possible. As Rob, this blog post informs me that Wolverhampton Wanderers did last season. Um, <laughs> so Wolves, Fulham, Sheffield United, and Crystal Palace were the bottom four. But yeah, you, mm. you, you get the gist in terms of style is that the shit teams will try and make it impossible for you to play football. Um, yeah. But the, yeah. The, the, perfect, the perfect scenario for a team like Everton is where you get relatively weak sides like a Brighton for example uh, opening up all of the the space and yeah St. James's Park reeks of this as well doesn't it just a, a terrible team who will literally give you the key to the city to play football in uh, that's very much how it feels yeah the thing that baffles me is you can change it game by game as well you don't have to have it set at the yeah. same dimensions for a whole season so say you're, say you're playing a team with like the noted like notoriously plays long ball down the middle football you can make your pitch nice and wide and you can like try and drag them out of shape and make them play wider if you're playing a team with two fast tricky skillful wingers you can narrow the pitch right in and like reduce the amount of space they've got it's great Rob, in, Amer- in, Amer- in American football, <laughs> in, like college football here, they the only time what you see typically is not the changes of dimensions, but teams that will decide, for instance, not to cut the grass very much if they want to slow down a really yeah. pacey team. Or kind of like what we see in the Premier League, I noticed that you know some days you water the pitch right before the ma- – like you're trying to create a slicker surface or depending on who you're playing, maybe you're, you're trying to slow down the surface. But – yeah. Yeah, no, I, I find that fascinating. Um, the, the, I think the only thing I would say about Villa, like I'm still like a, like most people, I would imagine, still trying to solidify or form a real opinion about what this particular Everton squad is. But just based on what we've seen so far, which is all we can really base it on, um, they certainly give off a vibe that's very different than last season's big fast start because last season's start felt like uh, a unicorn landed in, in our side and the unicorn got to do unicorn things and everything and, and everyone was just sort of playing out of their mind in ways that that weren't really uh, reflective of what the squad actually is this feels uh, I, I think the word sustainable sometimes get gets used or whatever but this doesn't feel like any of these guys are playing out of their heads. Now I'll grant you Andrews Townsend's not going to score those worldies every week or whatever, but I do think that the, that this side and the way they've played so far is, has been about things that are not really overly complicated. They it's frankly a manager who looked at a squad decided that he was going to, from a fitness perspective, get them in the best shape that, that he could get them. I'm sure that will hopefully continue to improve throughout the season and decided to just sort of use them in a way that befits their strengths uh, as a collective squad. And it, it feels like right now, I think you use the term, um, you know, key thing you said, we're a more settled squad right now than Villa. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if you're going to find an upside in the, not, in the not signing many players, I think the upside can be, yeah. this is a group of guys that uh, barring a, a couple of additions who frankly have come Come in and just slotted right in very seamlessly and have not been the kind of players that require a ton of 
uh, you know, hand holding or any of these things that, you know, it's a couple quick wingers and a backup goalkeeper who's been on a bunch of other Premier League sides. There's no drama with any of this. You've got a bunch of guys playing together who know each other. Uh, and a manager who seems to understand them better than they probably understood themselves. Like I, there's a part of me that wonders if this squad, its biggest problem over the last several years is that, and we talked a lot about them not having an identity. Um, I, I don't think that that's not just because we couldn't figure out what Everton was good at or what they were trying to do. I don't know that they had a sense of really who they were or what they were trying to do. Um, this feels so far and it's early and it's it's all the caveats aside it does seem to feel like a side who has a manager who is to the point that's been made by several of the players if you guys have noticed some of these pieces that come out a manager who will not just tell them what they're good at but what they're not good at what they can what they can improve upon and and I think that those are the things that have resonated with them and they've stayed focused on the task at hand they've stayed focused on well how can I be better how can I contribute what are the things that I need to do um, you know to contribute to this and you know have a plan that seems to to work and frankly just I, I think we all were worried that that Benitez wouldn't get results early and that this would be the same old same old but I think getting these results in the bank early have allowed some goodwill to to develop between the fans and this squad and from the squad to have confidence in itself to be able to say we know consistently every week for the most part who's going to go out there from the squad who's going to probably be in the starting 11 there's only Really, if you think about it, guys, there's only about what uh, 13 or 14, 15 players really that are that are part of things right now. I mean, I think that that's probably how it's going to be for a bit. So I think you've got to take advantage of it. So I'm feeling, you know what? I'm going to say it two one. I, I think I don't think there's any reason we can't go there and just play within ourselves and, uh, and and come out with a decent result. I'm feeling good right now. And uh, I'm always, as, as always with Everton, I'm prepared to be horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, last thing I want to conclude with before we finish up, guys, uh, this has already run so long. And I know, I know, I know the management loves that, but I don't give a shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a quick feature, a quick feature that I'm going to do from uh, for the rest of this month and through October. This is my favorite movie watching season of the year, scary movie season. And I use the term scary loosely because sometimes the best horror movies are the ones that are unintentional comedy. Um, I am in particular a fan. My favorite horror genre is the low budget 80s slasher film. Anything that involves really amazing kills with uh, blood effects that just are so insane. Uh, like I'm, in, you know, any in, like see, like Evil Dead is one of my favorite movies, or you know, any of the the early Nightmare on the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or, or or the Friday the Thirteenth movies. I love those. But the movie that I have to recommend this week. Um, I actually sent the trailer to Keith and Mark uh, because I wanted them to see the magic of this movie is a 1986 film called Chopping Mall, not shopping mall, chopping as in chopping people up. Uh, it is a movie about a mall that is possibly sometime in the future. They don't really make any of that very clear 
where these automated robots who are there ostensibly for security purposes uh, malfunction and become killer robots. And of course, you have a bunch of horny American teens uh, set against the backdrop of an 80s synth score and soundtrack who have all decided to spend the night in the mall and drink a bunch and smoke and have sex. And of course, uh, they come up against these killer robots. And <laughs> all I will tell you guys is that I will put the, I'm going to tweet out the uh, the trailer to this, the original trailer, this movie was called, I think it was called like Killer Bots or something like that, um, or Kill Bots is what it was called. And then they changed it to Chopping Mall because apparently that was causing too much confusion uh, amongst GoBots and Transformers and, and, and people thinking it was a kid's movie back in the 80s. And it was certainly not a kid's movie. Um, but what I can tell you is that the trailer will hopefully sell you on it. But if that does not sell you on it, I'm going to now quote one sentence from this film that should sell you on this film. At one point, one of the, uh, the women in the film, one of the lead actresses in the film, in the midst of all of this harrowing action, literally says, I'm sorry, I'm just not used to being chased around the mall in the middle of the night by killer robots. If that does not sell you on how awesome this fucking movie is, this then sounds, nothing will. This sounds so shit. It's so, sh but dude, that's why it's great. And I think that's the thing is it's, it, the 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 eighty the low budget eighties American horror film slasher film they they're they're great precisely because they're shit and occasionally whatever budget constraints they have the the imagination and the fun that comes from these films is just unmatched so I would highly recommend grabbing grabbing your favorite beverage or smoking your favorite uh, you know league semi legal product and watching this film. Um, I would love to hear from all of you uh, about your uh, reactions to this film. But if you've made it this far into Kickabout, and uh, hopefully you have, then you will check out this movie. Keith, uh, I am expecting you to watch this movie. Mark, I have to, you know, drag to, to any pop culture stuff at all. But it's set. This movie is a svelte 77 minutes. They cut it down from a 90 minute film to 77 minutes. So it, it is, it is almost barely a full length movie. It's more like a long short film, uh, but it's incredible. And I, I'm excited. Uh, I'm very, very, very excited about this. The music's great. There's gratuitous nudity and violence and all of it. It's wonderful. I, all, I can't when, recommend it. When you now come over to the UK of a new year, we're definitely going to sacrifice a night owls in favor of sitting down in someone's lounge watching fucking killer robot shopping mall people, whatever the fuck it's called. Oh, yeah. Yes, let's do that. Yes. Let's make that happen. <laughs> uh, we will make that happen. We will make that happen. I'm, I'm bringing up horror films to the table here. When you, mentioned oh. it was your, when you mentioned it was your favorite genre, have you ever seen a film called The Visit? The visit. No, it sounds familiar, but no. Tell me about the visit. I, I am going to totally. I, I don't know if to ruin the twist here. Are you okay? What, what? Don't ruin the twist, but just just set it up for me. Okay, so um, a single mom um, got two kids. She's going away for a, a weekend with her boyfriend, so she sends the kids to her parents' house. Who? She kind of hasn't spoken to her parents in a long time, um, but she wants to like reconnect with them. She wants them yes. to, to meet the grandkids. I've not seen this, but I know which one. I've seen the trailer for this. Okay, yeah, go ahead. She, she sends the kids off to stay with the grandparents for a week, I think it was. Um, they, they they kind of 
started to notice kind of like weird goings on. They, you know, getting up in the middle of the night, doing strange things around the house, saying strange things, not letting them into certain rooms of the house, mm-hmm. uh, and then a, a couple, a couple of harrowing developments happen. But do you, do you know when some, something happens or something is said in a film, and it just totally takes your insides away and just creates this enormous lump in your throat. And there's there's one particular sentence in that which it's probably the the verbal equivalent of when that alien walks across the screen in signs, and you you just get oh. that you just, yeah exactly you just get that chill that runs through your body. Do you know what I mean, Keith? Mm, that, yeah, that one scene oh. right yeah. signs is not an inherently jumpy film at any point, but that one scene just really really just gets you, doesn't it, on like a cerebral level. It just, you, yeah. your whole body sort of goes, what was that? So th- there's one sentence in The Visit that is like, fuck, I just I just, just had no idea that that was going to happen. But it, it, it makes you want to dive into the film and, and rescue these kids. Uh, but yeah, oh my God, watch it. Because it's, it's not the greatest film in the world, but I, ju- I just live for that like two seconds of, horror that just instills in your body when you see it but yeah signs that moment was up there for just being i'm i'm fully ready to throw the tally out the window right now awesome i will i will check out the visit i think my wife saw it and said it was great and i just i didn't I, for whatever reason i've missed it but i i will yeah, i will watch it uh for sure but yes guys scary movies are are are, are absolutely the best uh and I, I again i'm not i'm not for the torture porn like, uh, you know, any of those types uh, necessarily, like Saw is probably my limit, you know, on stuff like that. But yeah, uh, no, this is more, more so, I wouldn't even call them horror films. They're like shock films, aren't they? They're yeah. just try, designed to shock the senses. Um, like, I'm not massive on horror films. I'm more of like, I, I like it like a thriller, like a yeah. sort of a thriller where you like, jump a bit, like A Quiet yeah. Place. Yes. was an incredible thriller. I've still not seen the second one yet. Oh, see um, the second one. It's great. I mean, it's I've, just as good. It's a continuation. It's wonderful. I've heard it's, I've heard it's very good. Um, if you want a terrible horror film to watch, I would recommend Dog Soldiers. <laughs> Dog Soldiers. Okay. It's brilliant. Woeful. Is that one of those films where the title pretty much tells you exactly what it's about? Yeah. So the basic premise is it's a British army patrol on an exercise in the north of Scotland and they encounter some dogs, shall we say. Oh, you've got the great Kevin McKidd. Kevin McKidd is in it. Sean Sean Pertwee is in it. Okay. I don't know who Sean Pertwee is. Oh, man. Sean Pertwee's great. You should. Okay. I can't. I can't. Re- um, I regret bringing a serious film to the table here. Go. Oh yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. That, it's not, no, no, no. It, look, hor- horror as a genre is a gigantic umbrella. Sort of like when you say rock music, it could really mean a million different things. Uh, it can mean a suspense thriller that is kind of murdery or violent, or it could be a haunted house film, which that's another genre that I absolutely love. It can be an unintentional comedy uh, in the form of the low budget uh, slasher film. It can be, you know, this kind of thing, dog soldier. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out, but check out dog soldiers. 
that Robin well, was that's... doing this pod, I, I never envisaged you saying the sentence, I'm not for torture porn. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> is that unfortunately, I, I, I don't even think we could technically, I don't think we could get away with making that the title just because it has the word porn in there and, and I, that would freak I, out. I, but... I'm sending the notes to Matt and that was the title. Jesus, he just <laughs> threw his phone in the bin. <laughs> uh, well, with that, we are capping off one of the longer kickabouts we've had in a while, but who gives a shit? It's been awesome, guys. Keith, thanks a lot, brother, for coming on. Mark, anytime, man, always, anytime. Been great. Uh, of course, we will have post match as an actual podcast, I assure you, this coming Saturday. Uh, please, uh, for those of you who have been patient, uh, you know, you know, hey, we're always trying new things, and uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, we'll have week, you know, uh, on the Blue Room Extra feed, of course. Uh, if you're not subscribing, you should. But uh, we'll have weekend preview. We'll have mailbag. We'll have all the good stuff coming up, and and then of course uh, all the regular shows throughout uh, the next week. Lots going on with Everton right now, and as always, uh, we appreciate you guys listening we'll see you again next week for more kickabout take care northern tool and equipment isn't just a store it's a problem solvers paradise fully stocked with the right professional grade tools and fully staffed with experts who have the right answers problem solved northern tool and equipment summer sale is on now stop in and save up to 50 percent on pressure washers sprayers generators fans lawn and garden equipment and more Hundreds of deals in-store or at northerntool.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.